Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying this Labor Day weekend. I hope for you and your families, it's full of relaxing, joyful activities. We have so many blessings, and we have so many things to be thankful for. Still, I know there are so many things to contemplate over a weekend like this one. Probably the most important current event is the recent and final withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on this country. Much has happened in a short 20-year period. No matter what you think of what has transpired, undoubtedly you will come to the conclusion that leadership matters, and who leads matters. One decision leads to another. The intense nature of the gravitational pull is sometimes more apparent in the goings-on of society than it is in the celestial orbits of the planets. So, so much tragedy and so much sorrow and all of it in plain view for us to see. Almost every one of us remembers where we were at when the planes struck the Twin Towers. It seems as if all of us experienced some form of a fog of war, so to speak, in those first few moments and at varying times during the last 20 years as the world made its way forward after those events. The idea of hunting down terrorists seems like a simple and clear mission. At first, though, it was confusing because terrorists are not nation-states, and for most of mankind, larger wars have been conducted against nation-states. This is a different kind of war. But again, this country had one more clear enemy, an enemy that was nothing more than clearly evil. And while he was no Hitler in terms of his ability to wage war, bin Laden was his equal in the area of evil. Unfortunately, like evil everywhere, its juxtaposition is often intertwined with good. What I mean by that is simple. Let me give you an example. As an American soldier approached an Afghan or an Iraqi city or village, it was never clear whether the kind of person they were facing was good or evil, and sometimes not clear until a man or a woman, or even sometimes a child ran toward them and either detonated themselves in the name of jihad, or, alternatively, threw themselves at the soldier's feet in complete repose, a joy that could only come when good had finally come to rescue them. How terrible the moment when a soldier with open arms expecting good is greeted with evil. And how terrible a moment when an ordinary and good citizen of those countries was killed because he himself was mistaken for evil by a soldier. These are equal tragedies in the eyes of the Lord. They are not collateral damage or any other euphemism. I say that the Afghani and Iraqi militants detonated those bombs in the name of jihad. I did not say they did so in the name of Allah because I do not believe that any religion, including the Muslim religion, condones truly the violence and hate and the evil that such acts represent. 
My heart goes out today to every American servicemen and women who fought in that war and then had to come home and now forever bear the scars of it. Men and women like me will never know the reality of what you saw and experienced and faced down with your own life. We will never be able to understand that fully, if at all. I do think we can appreciate what the dividend has been to each of us. Now we can go on every day and have some sense of normalcy. At least that's what we've had for the last 20 years. We have been safe from this kind of threat. We have not had to worry about the kinds of things that were going through our head on September 12th and 13th and 14th of 2001 and for a period thereafter. Where it goes from here, I'm not sure, but I have to be trusting for a moment. For the Afghan and Iraqi families who are nothing but good and got in the way of all of this evil and then lost lives and family and friends, well, my sorrow and prayers go to them as well. They are humans. They are peoples of the world. They love and live as we do. They cry and mourn as we do. If they were all crying at once, it might be heard all the way across the ocean. Right in our own backyard, it would be a solemn interruption to the playful sounds we might otherwise hear on a Labor Day weekend. Nevertheless, I love this country dearly. I'm not always happy with what our leaders have done over my lifetime, and these last 20 years for sure. But I'll leave the politics out of it because... That's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about leadership, though, and finding your way and doing the right thing, and finding people to trust that will do the right thing, and finding people with the right minds and thoughts and of commensurate courage to lead this country in the right direction. Because leadership matters always, and who leads matters even more these days in such troubled times. My prayers go out in the coming days this week for all of the families who lost loved ones in the attacks that occurred on September 11th, 2001. Good men and women just getting up that morning and getting on with life, taking on all the challenges that come with it that are quite enough to grapple with before anything tragic even begins to penetrate the picture. And all of the firemen and policemen and other servants of the people who ran up into those burning buildings to save someone, even with great peril to their own lives, clearly present. Someone they never knew and never met. Just a fellow citizen. Another human being. A good friend of mine and an old boss, Charlie Evans, taught me a great deal on this topic of leadership. Most people, as they go, borrow from others as they hone their own view of the world and their own approach to life. Charlie's approach had a demonstrable impact on me. His leadership style was unique, and I remember distinctly a moment when he taught a large group of us with a simple example. His storytelling that day had a theme as we all launched into an executive retreat. It was simple. Most everything important in life you learned by the time you got through kindergarten. That made us all chuckle at first, this simple little statement. He proceeded to show, example by example, why that was true. When he came to the end of this extraordinary story tell, he finished it off with one more, very simple story from kindergarten. And he said, 
when the going gets tough in the sandbox, turn to each other and hold hands, because it's always better to face it together. Charlie, I hope you are listening today because this episode is dedicated to you, a man who has always made the murky fog of business and indeed of life a little more clear for everyone around you. You are a shining example of how important it is when one decides who's going to lead. Well, as you all know, I've been doing a lot of talking and a little bit of wandering lately and sometimes during a long road trip, even after a really good conversation when you're still hours away from the next destination, still hours away from the next stop, and the road is straight and narrow, it's just easy to stop talking for a little while and be silent. Turn on the radio and let everyone in the car listen to somebody else for a while. After all, God did give us two ears and one mouth, right? Well, that's what we're going to do for what's left of this episode 54 and also episode 55. Before we leave Trauma Room 1, I think it's important to hear something from some of the key doctors who participated in the story that you just heard in episode 53. I happened to run across several interviews that I think would be quite helpful to you in understanding what those doctors saw and did and experienced that day at Parkland Hospital. The reason, of course, that this is important is that there is such a contrast in some ways and on some topics with what the doctors at Parkland saw and what ultimately was documented as being seen in the autopsy that was done by different doctors at Bethesda later that night. The interviews that you were about to hear were not conducted right around the moment of the assassination. As you know, normally those are the kind of discussions that I like to present and use as evidence in this podcast series, because interviews performed closer to the assassination date tend to be less tainted or even influenced by all of the news accounts that went on. And of all the events that occurred afterward, and that might have even touched some of the witnesses after the assassination. All of these circumstances threatening the truth and threatening to rewrite what is in the minds of the witnesses themselves after so many years and so many influences, some known and some unknown. Even having said that, I think these discussions that you are about to hear are quite relevant and quite good, even though they were conducted in the latter stages of life for the three physicians that you are going to hear from today, and many years after the assassination itself. For many years, there was very little in the way of outside commentary made by the Parkland physicians. It became known eventually that, internally, the medical hierarchy under which they operated was dead set against public commentary, probably with at least some good intentions, and maybe some not-so-good intentions as well. But clearly, they drew the line in an attempt to ensure that none of the esteemed doctors at Parkland who were in Trauma Room 1 that day would make a penny on the telling of their story. That concept was abhorrent inherently to the entire medical community of the day, and still is, but there was probably more to it. We'll get to that later, but suffice it to say at this point that any public disagreements between physicians on medical matters, 
which are rare to begin with in life, would become an even rarer commodity when it came to Parkland physicians disagreeing with officials on the results of the JFK autopsy. Still, there were many medical personnel that claimed they were either there that day and they were actually not, or they enhanced the story around their involvement in those frantic minutes, or both. But today, you are hearing from the core of the medical staff that was there that day, the legitimate spokesman who truly participated in the gruesome moments that took place in Trauma Room 1. The first clip is a short one, and it's by one of the more experienced and well-respected members of the medical team that worked on President Kennedy in Trauma Room 1. It was Dr. Marion Jenkins who was introduced in Episode 53 and who was head of anesthesiology at Parkland. Normally, anesthesiologists sit at the head of the table upon which a patient is lying, administering anesthesia or oxygen. Generally, they are in a good position to see head injuries as a result of that. Keep that in mind as you listen to Dr. Jenkins. The second interview involves Drs. Robert McClellan and Ron Jones, who were both intimately involved, along with others, as they assumed the principal positions in the work that was done on the president. Dr. McClellan maintained to his dying day that he believed the headshot came from the front, and his physical position in Trauma Room 1 throughout those Desperate few minutes gave him potentially even more time to observe the actual damage to the head than the time that was taken by Dr. Kemp Clark, the neurosurgeon. McClellan was a general surgeon and was an associate professor of surgery at the Southwest Medical School that was affiliated with Parkland. McClellan is, for the most part, a highly credible witness. But keep in mind that any doctor who had an opinion on this at Parkland received, at various times, some sort of criticism from those who were in the opposite camp on the conspiracy matter. Dr. Jones, based on his testimony to the Warren Commission and comments made early on after the assassination, was also of the opinion that at least one shot had come from the front. His position on these matters has softened over the years, perhaps more influenced and impacted by the results of the autopsy than others in his peer group. For this reason, having these two very mindful and respectful men assume the stage together in an interview by the Sixth Floor Museum, an interview that was moderated by award-winning anchor John McCaw from WFAA-TV in Dallas, well, It's nothing less than a treat. And Mr. McCaw is also one of the most mindful and respectful interviewers that could have been on the stage with them both that day, making the conversation rich and more objective and meaningful for you to listen to as well. Store as much as you can away of these facts because you'll need to understand some of them when we get to the following episodes related to the actual autopsy itself. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 54. Hi, I'm Christy Jenkins. 
My father, Dr. M.T. Jenkins, known to all as Pepper, led the resuscitation efforts as the chief of anesthesiology at Parkland and Southwestern Medical School. I was in the dining room sitting with some other members of my department and a few surgical residents. Suddenly the loudspeakers came alive with the call, Dr. Shire Stett. Dr. Ron Jones got up and went to the phone and answered for him to tell the operator he was out of town. He came immediately back to the table and said, the president's been shot and they're bringing him here. I ran across the dining room, down the back stairs, to the one stair flight, to the emergency room entrance. As I came into the room, Carico was just taking a laryngoscope out of the patient's mouth. That's the lighted instrument used to put a tube through the mouth into the trachea so it can be connected up to a ventilator or to a breathing bag so you can respire for the patient. He was cyanotic, that is, his face was blue, suffused. His, his pupils were widely dilated, his conjunctiva were bloodshot, he had a gasping type respiration. Gasping type is an agonal type respiration, a malahoid group of muscles, these right under the chin. Give him a chin jerk. He wasn't dead, his EKG had a dying heart pattern. Because where I was standing against the president's head, every time he squeezed his chest, blood squirted out, went down my front, into my, down my britches leg, into my shoes. There wasn't blood anywhere else, though, except on the president's head. So I thought, ventilation's inadequate. He's bubbling. EKG is looking a little better with the oxygen. He's a bigger man than I thought he was. He's sticking off of both ends of the table. How in the world could he function in that brace that he has on? He was wearing a canvas-laced steel back brace. It came up to his rib margin in front, went higher in the back, and he was laced into that brace in addition by six inch wide ace bandages, which would go one turn around his torso, then around the thigh, then around his torso and around the other thigh. Some of the uh, assassination theorists would say, well, why didn't he fall forward if he's hit from the back? Well, that shows their lack of knowledge of ballistics first, but second, I'd say he couldn't have fallen forward regardless of what direction he was hit from. Perhaps if he hadn't had that brace on, the third bullet as it was, would not have hit him. He would have fallen out of sight. There were other doctors in the room by this time, too. I'm not trying to make this a sole <laughs> description as if I were the only one there. I'm trying to give you my view of it. And I'd have to say that everyone who comes into the room would enter into the resuscitative process from a position where he knew he would be needed. As I'm giving you my report that somebody else says he was the only one there. Well, I think that's a, a tribute to the surgical colleagues we have that when they work, they have tunnel vision. They look at where they're working, they don't see anything else. They're not uh, distracted by anything else. And I did draw up a list afterwards and named, put names by everybody who was there. And I'm glad I have because uh, there have been another hundred or so who claimed to have been there. 
others in the room were starting intravenouses by doing cut downs, cut down to a vein since they didn't stand up, to put a cannula in, a catheter in to give fluids and blood, one putting a chest tube in a left chest because it listened to the chest, couldn't hear breath sounds as I was squeezing the bag, another putting a catheter in a bladder, which is one of the things you do to the trauma patient to help assess what all of his injuries are. And so there are IVs being started, intravenous solutions being started in three extremities. He was then asked a question about Jacqueline Kennedy. She would come circling through and a member of the Secret Service would come in, get her by the arm and take her out. She looked uh, at a 50-yard stare. She didn't see anything, it appeared. I think you could have done this and she wouldn't have blinked. White, drawn in face, looking very remote, shocked, I would say. And she was carrying her hands uh, like this for the first two or three times she came through the room. Her left hand over her, over her right hand, and at one time she came and nudged me with her elbow, and as I looked around, handed me what was in her right hand, which was a big chunk of the president's brain. That was a bad moment, I can tell you. <clears throat> now, I believe people coming into the room were not really aware at first of a head injury. He had a bloody matted hair and he had a big shock of hair and it covered the wound in the side of his head. They were contemplating what to do next. I said, Mike, we don't have a chance here. Look at this head injury. We cannot resuscitate him. And then for the first time, we slowed up and people took a look at this head injury. But you pull the hair up a little and then you can see that there's a piece of bone the size of your palm of your hand that was gone and some brain tissue hanging from the wound. Oh, Dr. Kemp Clark, the neurosurgeon, did a better study of it, a very short study, and said there's no, no possible way. And went over and asked the priest, when is the proper time to declare one dead that you can give the last rites? Father Huber said, we would like to give the last rites as soon as we can after one is declared dead. With that, having declared him dead, the room really cleared out. I was, I was amazed how soon people got out of the room. I think they didn't want to stay. Now, as you hear accounts that how many people did a thorough examination of the wound, that's not true. They left the room as soon as they could. I think everybody took a look, but not a, not a thorough examination by any means. And I didn't leave the room. I was trying to take out, as I needed to do, un take out the EKG leads, there were four leads plugged in, take out the IV leads, take out the chest tube, remove the tracheostomy tube. And while I was doing this, uh, Ms. Kennedy came back in the room and the priest for the last rites. And she approached him from the foot and kissed him on the toe, on the foot, leg, thigh, abdomen, chest, and lips, and then stood at the side. The priest was certainly aware of the solemnity of the occasion, the gravity of the circumstances, and 
written with slow, resonant tones. He had a very appropriate service, last rites, and a prayer. I want to start out by uh, by pointing out to something. Quite obviously, we're not going to be able to solve the assassination this evening. Uh, but as you have heard, history really does matter. I want you to think of what we're going to be talking about tonight as uh, as a legacy for your grandchildren and my grandchildren, uh, and your great grandchildren and my great grandchildren, because they will not have the opportunity we're going to have tonight, and that is to speak and to hear directly from people who were eyewitnesses and who were medical experts with regard to quite clearly the most uh, controversial event that I think uh, I can remember in, in my lifetime. Uh, a quick story about me. My father was in the military, so where I lived, the assassination happened at night. We lived just outside Madrid, Spain. My neighbor came hammering on our door, screaming. Uh, my mother answered the door, asked what happened. She said that uh, uh, the neighbor, Mrs. Attaway, said that President Kennedy has been assassinated. My mother started crying. The neighbor started crying. I remember looking out the window. Any of you have been in the, were in the military at that time, you might remember this. I remember looking out the window at that time. I was in the fourth grade. And seeing all these grown men run to their jobs in their Air Force uniforms in the nighttime. So you knew that it was something serious. For those of you who don't know, for a little while we thought the Russians did this. And those of you who think that that was not serious, it was serious, very serious. So tonight what we're going to try to do is provide people who actually were eyewitnesses to this entire event, this situation, to, to, to the assistance of the president after he was shot. We're going to provide no filter from a journalist, no filter from history. That's why I, I have here a list of questions from the audience. If you haven't had a chance to give us your questions yet, you'll see people coming through. Uh, when I do these programs, I like to give the audience questions as much time as possible. You hear enough from journalists. They yak a lot. So this is an opportunity to answer the kinds of questions I think uh, that you may have. With that, uh, please, welcome, please join me in welcoming, uh, first of all, Dr. Ronald C. Jones, Chairman of the Department of Surgery, Baylor University Medical Center. Dr. Jones was the Chief Surgery Resident at Parkland Memorial Hospital's Emergency Room on November 22nd, 1963. He was among the team of doctors that worked on the resuscitation of President Kennedy in Trauma Room 1. And then less than 24 hours, or 48 hours later, he was part of the surgical team that treated Lee Harvey Oswald. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ronald Jones. <laughs> Dr. Robert McClellan. Dr. McClellan is an instructor in uh, Surgery at Parkland Memorial Hospital in 1963. He is now a professor emeritus of surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center. He participated in the treatment of President Kennedy in Trauma Room 1, 
assisted in the surgery of Governor John Connolly, and less than two days later, the treatment of Lee Harvey Oswald. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for Dr. Robert McClellan. Doctor, I, I want to start this off, first of all, uh, for our audience who may not live here. Give us a sense of what Dallas and the hospital was like uh, in the early 1960s. Well, <clears throat> Parkland Hospital, that was the third Parkland Hospital. The first one was in the late 1800s, burned. second one was on Maple Avenue, and the third was the current Parkland Hospital on Harry Hines, and it had not been completed. It was only seven stories rather than the ten stories that it is now, and uh, it had opened in 1956, so it was a relatively new uh, hospital, county hospital, for the indigent or low-income patients for Dallas County, and uh, there was some segregation going on in that hospital at the time, as there was throughout uh, the country. Dr. McClellan, your, your thoughts about Dallas and Parkland at the time. Right. Well, one of the things that has struck in my mind is how Dallas has changed uh, in general uh, just from, say, the political standpoint. Uh, at that time, in the early 1960s and late 50s, uh, there was probably um, a much less balanced political climate here, uh, perhaps a great deal toward the right side. In fact, I remember seeing uh, a publication in one of the two papers, I forget which one, whether it was the Times-Herald or the Dallas News, somebody had bought uh, a full-page ad uh, the day before President Kennedy came uh, with President Kennedy's picture on it and said, wanted for treason. So that was some of the uh, climate that existed here at that time. Uh, and that caused a great deal of kind of concern and worry, in fact, when President Kennedy uh, came to Dallas. Let's go through this now of the day itself. For those of you who were not born at the time, it was on a Friday. Uh, it was a very nice day. Uh, tell me what happened, how, how your day, uh, Dr. Jones, tell me how your day began and how you were first notified. Okay, I had just prevent, uh finished a vascular procedure, an abdominal aortic um, vascular procedure, and that was concluded about 11.30, having started about 8 or 8.30. And we went down to the cafeteria to have lunch, along with Dr. Perry and I did, who was my staff, and um, the operator began to page Dr. Tom Shire's stat. He was chief of surgery, Dr. Tom Shire's stat. That means respond immediately. And then other physicians were paged stat. And I knew he was not even in town. And so I went up to the telephone on the wall in the cafeteria and I called the operator and I said, why are you paging everyone's stat? And she said, Dr. Jones, the president's been shot and they're bringing him to the emergency room and they need doctors right away. And that gave you a tremendous rush, flush, adrenaline rush feeling, and I turned around, and the chief of anesthesia and the OR supervisor were right behind me, and I told them uh, what had happened. I said, you're not going to believe this, but the president's been shot, and Dr. Jenkins said, I'll go upstairs and get an anesthesia machine, and Audrey Bell said, I'll uh, get the operating room ready. And so Dr. Perry and I, along with Dr. Red Duke, who was a fourth-year resident, went out the back of the cafeteria, ran down the hall, down the steps, into the front of the emergency room, and ran back into trauma room one, and that's where the president was, 
and Mrs. Kennedy was standing just inside the room on the left, and the president was on the cart, and we saw this small wound in the neck and a large wound in the back of the head. Dr. McClellan, how about you? Where were you when you first were notified? Um, I was in the operating room at Parkland on the second floor of Parkland, uh, and I was showing a, a movie about how to repair a hiatus hernia to several of the senior surgery residents. And uh, in the midst of that, I heard a little tap on the conference room door. And so I went to the door and looked out, and one of our senior surgery residents was standing there, Dr. Crenshaw. And he said, uh, Dr. Mack, would you step outside? I needed to tell you something. And so I went in, shut off the projector, and stepped back outside. And he said, they've just uh, called from the emergency room and said they're bringing President Kennedy in from his motorcade downtown where he's been shot. And they want all the surgery faculty to come down to the emergency room immediately. So Dr. Crenshaw and I got into the elevator there uh, in the operating room and rode two floors down to the emergency room that was just below the operating room. And as we were riding down, we were talking to one another and saying hopefully that, well, many times we hear about some bad things being brought into the emergency room, but it turns out that it's really not that bad. With that, the door to the elevator came open. Uh, I opened out into the emergency room, and I saw immediately a huge crowd of people, shoulder to shoulder, men in business suits standing there in the emergency room, filling it up. And I thought, I'd never seen anything like this before. And just as I stood there and took that in, the crowd spontaneously parted, made a little corridor down to uh, the emergency operating rooms just off of the central part of the emergency room. And there, sitting outside trauma room one on a uh, folding chair was Mrs. Kennedy in her bloody clothing. So I knew immediately then that this was just what they said it was. I, I, you, you gentlemen may not be able to see it, but can everybody see the pictures that we have displayed for you now? That is trauma room one. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, most of us who are not familiar with medicine, we probably have a different vision of what might have been a trauma room, but that was uh, an up-to-date tri- room, uh, trauma room for 1963. Right. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Okay. right. And, and the, if you look at this uh, room, um, I don't know if I can find the uh, pointer or not. I had a pointer here. Uh, you can uh, see that... Um, this room, he was on a cart, and I'm standing about right here, and you can see that that's no more than six feet to this cabinet. And by the time I needed the chest trays and the cut-down trays to do a start an IV, I could not get to that There were so room. many people there. were so many room. people there. Uh, did, did you see the picture that was before this? The, the staff members, a lot of people may be under the impression that maybe only three or four people were in that room in terms of medical staff. These are members of who, who what, worked on the president at the time or worked on the staff, all these individuals? No, these were the uh, residents and some of the staff taken uh, a few um, months uh, later. And Dr. Perry, who worked on the president, was sort of considered the primary surgeon is here and deceased. Uh, Dr. Tom Shires there, deceased. And Dr. Baxter, who was also there, uh, deceased. And Dr. Crenshaw, who you mentioned, deceased. Dr. Carrico, who was a second-year resident, uh, deceased. 
and uh, there's some others up there. I know, I think Phil Williams was in the, in the front row. He was in the area. This is a room that uh, is what, Dr. McClellan, 15 feet square? I, Probably, approximately that. Not much bigger than that. Size of a yeah, very master room. bedroom closet or something? Well, a little bit larger than that. <laughs> Unless but not, ver not, ver not very large not very at all. Big, not very big. Not, not a room. Depends room on where you live. Maybe it is that size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're, uh, you describe, uh, describe for us, if you can, when you first walk in the room. Now, you've, you've mentioned you saw, you saw Mrs. Kennedy sitting on a folding chair, Dr. McClellan. Mm -hmm. uh, Let's go on from there to tell us specifically what you saw from that period forward. Well, I walked by Mrs. Kennedy and pushed the door to trauma room one open, uh, and there were all several other people, Dr. Perry, Dr. Jones, Dr. Carrico were in there before me, and uh, they were just beginning to work on the president. Uh, Dr. Perry was assuming the role of the primary surgeon, and as I walked by on the left side of the gurney the president was lying on, Dr. Perry uh, leaned across and handed me a surgical retractor and said, Bob, would you go stand at the head of the cart and lean over and put this retractor in the wound in his neck where we're going to explore and do a tracheostomy. Can, can you explain to, for, for those of us that have missed what a retractor is? Well, a retractor is a little metal surgical instrument, very simple little blade, that has a little hook on the end of it, and you can put that in the edge of an incision and pull it open so the operating surgeon can see better down into the wound. So that put me at the head of the gurney, uh, leaning over the president's head and looking down from about 18 inches uh, into his head wound and the back of his wound. So I had probably the best view of that massive wound in the back of his head from that position where I was helping Dr. Perry uh, and Dr. Baxter do the uh, tracheostomy and the exploration of this wound. Now, Dr. Perry, uh, Dr. Carrico, the, the, the initial concern was this wound here. Uh, right. Based upon what I've heard you say, there wasn't a doctor in the room who was probably closer to that massive head wound than, no. than you. No. In fact, when I went and stood in that position, the first thing that kind of exclaimed out of my mouth was I said, my God, have you seen the back of his head? It's gone. And Dr. Carrico said, no, we just got here, just ahead of you, and we haven't had time to look at anything except this wound in his neck. And I said, well, the back of his brain, the half, back half of his brain is gone. And as I stood there, just as I said that, uh, the right half of the cerebellum, the back part of the brain, fell out of that massive wound in the back of his head onto the cart. So this was obvious that this was a, a fatal injury to the brain. Doc, Dr. Jones, where were you at the time? What, what, did, what did you see at the time? Position-wise, the president flat on the table, arms out. Dr. Perry's above him near the shoulder. I'm right here. And um, so I couldn't see over the, the back of the head nearly as well, but I did get a, one of the few people that saw the the wound right here in the middle of his neck. And uh, I think all of us that first day thought that was an entrance wound. And our assumption was for the first 24 hours that that was an entrance wound, this was an exit wound. Um, subsequently, that was proven wrong when 
we didn't, once he was decided that he was dead, we didn't turn him over. And at autopsy, it was found that he had been shot in the back as well. Since Dr. Perry had made the incision here, they didn't in Bethesda recognize this wound. And uh, so they saw a wound back here and a wound up here, and they didn't find any bullet, and they didn't find an exit area. So once they called us the next morning and found out about that, they said, okay, he's been shot back here, and this is an exit wound, not an entrance wound. Okay. I, now I've, I've got, I, though, have some, some real questions about the wounds themselves, ones that I'm not sure you've, you've been asked before. Had he not been shot in the head, would he, would he have been able to survive the other wound? Because basic, I've heard you say before, both of you said, the head wound was not survivable, even today. Is that correct? That's, That's correct. correct. That's correct. Uh, now, what about the other wound? I think that was survivable. That was a wound, if it did, whichever direction it came, from the front to the back or the back to the front, it would have skimmed across uh, the neck and out to, uh, next to the major blood vessels. That was one concern we had, uh, not only making the tracheostomy, but was the major blood vessel to the brain, the carotid artery, injured. It was not, but that could have been injured, but it was not injured. So this wound here from the front to the back or the back to the front was basically a soft tissue injury that would have been readily survivable. But it did injure his windpipe. It did injure, did his, injure his windpipe. Did, yeah, but that was would not have been any kind of fatal injury. Now we have come to the point that I, I find most fascinating because we all have memories. Uh, and in 50 years' time, those memories, memories sometimes are divergent. And the two of you have different memories of the wounds you saw. I want you for us to describe in your own words... No, nothing from me or anybody else, what you saw in terms of the, the, the wound injuries. Dr. McClellan, I'm going to start with you because uh, I, I know that you had some, uh, in hearing what you're saying, you had some questions about the wounds and what has been described as a wound. Right, uh, and that's based mainly on two things. First of all, what I saw in the emergency room, uh, and then a number of years later, when I first had the opportunity to see the Zapruder film, and see several, you know, showings of it, uh, that altered what I came to think about the nature of the wounds and whether there was more than one shooter or simply one shooter. Um, and what I saw uh, in the Zapruder film was, as um, I'm sure many people have seen this film, uh, as he's coming off of uh, Houston Street onto Elm Street, heading toward the triple underpass, um, he's sitting next to Mrs. Kennedy, and they love, both look uh, fine. Then just as they make that turn, uh, as I'm sure everybody recollects, uh, President Kennedy's hands go up to his neck. And so something has clearly happened at that time. And then the motorcade continues moving slowly down toward the triple underpass on Elm Street and disappears behind a large sign that was present at that time, is not there now, uh, for a few moments, and then it proceeds out from behind that sign, and as the motorcade comes out from behind the sign, you see President Kennedy still has his hands up to his neck, and Mrs. Kennedy now has realized something has happened, and she's leaning over to him as if to say, what's wrong? And just as she does that, President Kennedy's head 
literally explodes, and he's thrown violently backward and to the left. And so that made me see that, as I saw that in several, you know, run-throughs, that this looked like he was hit from one direction, from behind or above, with that first shot, and then that a shot came from in front and threw him violently backward and to the left. And that fit with what I saw, that massive wound, low, not high, but low in the back of his head. Yeah, let, let, let me stop you right there, because everybody, you, you can see what we're showing you. I, I should point out to you our, our drawings, so we're not going to show you the, the actual photographs. But it's this drawing that Dr. McClellan believes is inconsistent with his conclusions. This one shows a, a bullet coming from up, upper back down right, to the front. Right. That's inconsistent with That's your conclusions. That's not consistent with what I saw, no. Okay. But, Doc, well, I don't, don't think that drawing is consistent okay. with what the autopsy showed no, either. No. They show a small wound here and, and then a large wound here. If you look at the Zapruder film, I'll just take the opposite side okay, uh, interpretation of that. Um, the, the head does go back. And so people said, well, if the head goes back, he must have been shot from the front. Uh, John Latimer, who's a urologist in New York, did a lot of studies. Uh, he first did it with watermelons, and he shot, and invariably the watermelon went back into the left. Uh, there was some criticism over that, so he took skulls and filled it with material like brain, and each time, consistently, it always, the brain went forward, the fragments went up, and there were two fragments found in the windshield of the, of the limo, and the skulls always fell back. Um, now, they weren't attached to the body, yeah. but nevertheless, they always fell back, even though they had been shot from the back. And these studies were done at the same angle in a tall building, 265 feet, which the three films, there's three films, not just the Zapruder, that show this. And that's how they determined that he was shot 265 feet away. And um, all that was consistent uh, with being shot from behind. I should tell you that Dr. Jones, you... Best way for me to say it is, you, you have, uh, you're, you believe the Warren Commission's conclusion is more reliable than uh, Dr. Well, McClellan's. There's, there's other evidence that, as far as this entrance wound and exit wound, because of the fibers that the forensic pathologist, now you've got to believe the pathologist, uh, Commander Hume was 38 years old when he was doing this, and the fibers in the back go in, and the fibers in the shirt where it exits in the tie go out. So that's the point that they make, that this must be an entrance and an exit. If you just looked at this, it looks like an entrance wound. We described it as a quarter of an inch. There's 2.5 centimeters in an inch. Quarter of it, 6.5, that's the size of the missile. So uh, it's, it's consistent with the missile, no question about that. But uh, uh, it could be an entrance or an exit, but it's the forensic pathologist interpretation that makes that determination that it's an exit wound. If you look at that Zapruder film, you see this flap of skull come out right here. And uh, it, I think it's a little lower than what this film shows. Yeah, yeah everybody get a, get a shot of that. It's a, it's a little bit lower than that. If you take a look at... Uh this is the Pruder film that you're that you're talking about, right? Correct. And the and the autopsy too. And the autopsy too. Mm -hmm. But Dr. McClellan, again, your your concerns are uh, with that whole theory of even a single gunman. You think that uh, 
in point of fact, uh, this may have been also done by someone who was shooting from the grassy knoll. I think that's at least possible. And here again, there's no question that, as Dr. Jones says, that whether this was an entrance or an exit, this was a separate wound. And I think that there was a second bullet fired from the grassy knoll that blew out the back of his head. I don't think this bullet that came through here had anything to do with making that massive wound in the back of his skull. And that was low enough where I could see down into it and see uh, the back part of the cranial cavity. And then when the cerebellum fell out, I could see even farther back into the skull. So this was a wound way back in the back of the, of the skull, which is more consistent with a wound coming from the front and blowing out the back, the lower part of the back of the skull. Now, I'm sometimes asked, well, did you see an entrance wound that would be consistent with that, that, that big wound? And I have to say, no, I did not. And all I can speculate there, and I want to emphasize that's all I'm doing is speculating, that the wound that maybe came in from the front, from maybe the grassy knoll, and blew out the back of his head was perhaps hidden within the hairline. And we didn't spend any time after he was pronounced dead uh, looking at his head. His head was covered with blood, and the thick hair on his head uh, very readily could have uh, covered up a wound that entered about here and blew out the back of his head. That's my speculation. I emphasize that that's speculation. What, what would, uh, going to one of the questions from the audience, uh, what, other than time, would be a reason for the divergence of opinions? Is it just, uh, there's just not enough evidence to be, to, to say anything conclusively? Because I think most of us have the impression that based upon what we see in, in the Warren report uh, and other things, is that uh, it's pretty conclusive. But I'm, I'm kind of hearing from both of you, well, medically, I don't know. Well, of course, we know you, no. that in 1976 to 79, the, because of all the speculation about this, and they say 75 to 80 percent of the American public believe there was a second gunman or a conspiracy rather than one gunman. The House Special Select Assassinations Committee was set up and studied all of this again from 1976 to 1979. And they concluded after that that in all probability, and I think that's the way the conclusion was stated, in all probability there was a conspiracy, there was more than one gunman. And they also said, which kind of made everybody wonder about that, however, we are not uh, at liberty to reduce all of, uh, to produce all of the findings until 50 years from now, until 2029. I still don't understand that. I was going to ask you, Dr. Jones, does that frustrate you? Uh, the two of you, when I think about all the people who, who claim to be witnesses to some part of this 48-hour event, from the death of the president to the, to the death of Lee Harvey Oswald. The two of the individuals who would have more education, more experience with gun, gunshot wounds than anybody else are the two of you. And yet you don't seem to have had enough access to the materials. Does that seem proper to you? Thank you for listening to episode 54 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. And please do continue to episode 55 for the rest of the story and conversation with Drs. McClellan and Jones.